Uh, so it's my privilege and my honor to introduce our first speaker. Uh, Roy is the director of Hope UK. He used to be the director of Youth for Christ for across the UK for a number of years. He's no stranger to our shores. His wife, Flo, is a great Northern Irish girl. And um, he's married well. And uh, this is like a second home to him. And he's been a great friend of the ministry of CVM and to me personally. And um, he rang me, to give you an idea, uh, the stuff that Roy does, he rang me up about May last year. And he's like, Spud, have you ever heard of this thing called the Christmas Truce of 1914? Where they sang the carol, Silent Night, and played football on Christmas Eve. And I was like, no, but I'd love to find out more. And that was about nine, six months, nine months before Sainsbury's even made it their number one Christmas ad for last year. So the way he tries to think about the stories in society, how we as a church can mobilize and use them in our culture. And um, would you please give him a warm welcome as he comes for our first session. Thanks, Thank, you. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. It's, uh, it's a real privilege to be uh, with you in Northern Ireland. I love Northern Ireland. Because you have some amazing women. <laughs> and uh, I reached a point where you kind of, as a man, you're kind of thinking, Lord, uh, who is the girl for me? And I scoured England. And there was no one there. And then Flossie came over to Bible College. And that was it. So guys, you produce some great women. And she is amazing. So I love Northern Ireland. What I didn't understand when I married her was when you get married, isn't it true, guys, you don't have a clue what you're entering into. And she's one of 11 children out in Ballanderry. Now, you'll know if you're out in Ballanderry, you're going to have 11 children because there's nothing to do in Ballanderry. Um, but uh, I've got relatives out there. I need to be careful. Um, but one of 11 children means that Christmas is a nightmare because they've all produced. And oh. Anyway, it's wonderful to be uh, with you this morning. Uh, my home is actually in rugby, and that's all I'm going to say about that because uh, it's probably appropriate not to say anything else. Um, I, uh, just a brief background to me so that you have some idea of uh, where I'm coming from. Uh, I wasn't brought up in the church. Uh, I had no church background whatsoever. Um, I was born in the east end of London in a place called Hackney. I was born under the sound of Bow Bells. Um, I never went to Sunday school. Uh, the reason I never went to Sunday school is because my brother went once and didn't like it. So I was never sent. Um, but I kind of lived in a very ordinary, typical lad. I, I didn't mainline with Bonnie and Clyde. I didn't kind of do evil stuff. I was just a regular teenager. But then I got moved to sit next to someone in class who was a Christian. He was the only Christian in our school. And uh, he wasn't cool. I actually said to him, you have to be a Christian. You'll never make it any other way. <laughs> Which is not a good thing to say. Um, but I got moved to sit next to him, and basically, to cut a long story short, he saw that as his mission to convert me. I was convinced that was the only reason he went to school. And uh, 
I got moved to sit next to him, and every question that I brought to him, he found an answer. And in the end, he said, Crowning. Now, my name is Roy Crown, and Crown does have an E on the end of it, so that you know that I'm not a pub, and I'm not a chain of hotels. Um, actually, when we had our first child, somebody said, if it's a girl, Roy, you'll need to call her Roseanne. When I was at school, my nickname, this is an ageist joke, was Arthur. That determines the age. There's a stack of you that don't have a clue what they are laughing at. We used to have a coin. It was an Arthur crown. Um, and then we produced a film called The Thomas Crown Affair. But the reality is that I went to this guy, he said, the trouble with you, Crowner, you've got no guts because you're not prepared to face up to the claim of Jesus Christ. It was then that I understand that Jesus Christ was the toughest, gentlest man that ever lived. I had a view of Jesus that was gentle Jesus, meek and mild, loves every little child. But he wasn't a real guy. And he challenged me and he said, you think you're a man? You are not a man. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ and then you'll become a man. And you'll be the servant of God, which is a real man. And uh, he challenged me on that. And then he invited me to a Christian camp. Uh, he lied to me, which is not good. But he invited me to this Christian camp and the lie was, he said it would be fun. His idea of fun and my idea of fun were completely different as 16-year-olds. We arrived at this camp, and at 9.30, this rather strange-looking man with khaki shorts, open sandals, came and told us lads it was time for bed. <laughs> I couldn't believe what he said. We slept in this bell tent with all our feet into the middle. We stayed up to about 4 o'clock in the morning, talking. I couldn't believe what happened at 6.30. This same man arrived at our tent. <laughs> he said, lads, it's time to get up. I'm like, what? And then he said a really interesting comment. He said, we're going to have a quiet time. I said, for the first time in the entire night, this tent has been quiet. You've just woke us up to tell us we're going to have what we've just had. What are you on? So that was my first exposure to Christianity. And uh, to cut a long story short, I became a Christian at that camp. And when your, hands fall, your life falls in the hands of the living God, it is the scariest moment of anyone's life. He totally changed my life. Within two weeks, I'd read the entire Bible. No one told me. We have this view that when people come to Christ, we follow them up. We chase them. Hey, listen, if you've encountered God, you don't have to chase people. The Spirit of God gives us hunger for his word. So within two weeks, I didn't get it all. You know, Leviticus was a real challenge. Song of Solomon, I was pleased that was in there. And then the Gospels. 
And it was the Gospels that kind of gave me this energy that said, I've now got a mission, I've now got a purpose. So I went and saw the headmaster in the school because that's what you do. It's the first time I'd ever gone and seen him without an invitation. (laughs) And I sat in his study and I said, sir, I would like to take a school assembly because the mission is I needed to communicate this gospel. And I only had a few months left in the school. So to do it one-on-one wouldn't work. I needed to do en masse. So I went into his study. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. But when you encounter Christ, don't you do crazy things? I mean, what have you got to lose? He can only say no. So I went into his study. I said, sir, I'd like to take a school assembly. He said, what are you going to say? I said, I'm going to say what's happened to me in the summer. I met Jesus Christ. It's changed my relationship with my parents, changed my relationship with the school, and actually, it's changed my relationship with you. (laughs) Because if you have a right relationship with God, it's got to change those relationships. Otherwise, it doesn't mean what it says. I said, I'd like to tell the my mates and my peers, he said, that's amazing, Graham. He said, yeah, you can do it. He said, actually, you can do two. I said, no, I don't need to do two. He said, do two. I don't like doing them. <laughs> you do that long enough, they call you evangelist. What did I say? I told him my story. And I realized it's a different thing to believe in your heart. But once you confess with your mouth, everything changes. But also once you confess with your mouth, salvation is certain. As I was confessing, if I had any doubts when I confessed it, I believed it. It's amazing in Romans when it talks about that. So that's a little bit about me, and I've been seeking to do that uh, since that encounter as a 16-year-old lad. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me uh, to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. And I'm just going to pull out a few things, the theme of DNA, I'm just going to pull out a few things from this particular passage. And um, I'm still into paper. How many people are into paper Bibles? Put your hand up. How many have gone for turning on their Bibles? Not many. I'm encouraging bring back paper. The reason being is when you turn on your Bible, if you get an email, it says email. And you're like, oh yeah, I'll go to that. Or you get a text. So let's bring back paper. Let's have a revolution. Paper Bibles. No, that didn't get a good response. (laughs) Mark 2. And uh, I really pray that God will just take some of these nuggets and set the seal on today. But my prayer for you guys is that something of what is shared throughout today will just be a real nugget in your life that will take root and bring about change. 
bring about such a change that we'll see some amazing things happen amongst the people of God. Amen? Don't we need that? Don't we long for that? I've also reached a stage in my life where to read the text, I need windows. Isn't it terrible when you go to the optician and they ask you your age? What's my age got to do with this? I just need glasses. And they say, no, how old are you, Mr. Crown? That is irrelevant. No, no, you're of an age where you need glasses. I'm like, says who? She said, your eyes. <laughs> you young people. Anyway, so a few days later, Mark chapter 2. A few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left in the inn, or not even outside the door, not in the inn, well, that's later coming in Christmas. Not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man. Since they could not get in because of the size of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. By digging through and then lowering the mat, the man was lying in. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Who does this fellow talk why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. That this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you making, sorry, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to, see, uh, or to say, get up, pick up your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Pray God, please speak to us from your word. When Jesus is in the house, things happen. Agreed? When Jesus is in the house in church, things happen. Agreed? But how many of us go to the Jesus house and we don't see too many things happen? So I want to just contextualize this story. The first thing we've got is a band of brothers carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. How does that happen? Well, the first thing to see any change in anyone's life is somebody's got to have vision that if we get this person to the presence of Jesus, things can look differently. 
If you're going to see any transformation in anyone's life, you have to have vision. And I see transformation happen in various different situations, but it comes about because somebody, somewhere, not always the leadership, but somebody somewhere says, I believe Jesus can change this person's life. I'm convinced the gospel has the power to do that. But many of us believers have stopped believing that. Because we haven't seen it for so long. And we've got to get back to believers being believers. So there's somebody with vision. And then the great thing about this passage is if you want to get people encountering Jesus, we've got to work in teams. It's a team ministry. And the joy of working in teams is a challenge and a nightmare. Isn't it? Isn't it wonderful to work in teams and a nightmare to work in teams? Because we've all got different DNAs. I remember when I led Youth for Christ and we had different people coming to the party. We did some emotional intelligence and we started to understand people. All of a sudden when people said stuff, I'd say, I know why you're saying that now. I get it. Then I know what with denominational leaders in the role that I do to seek to mobilize the church. And as you get those together in a room, you realize that we're in the family of God, but we are all different. When I was at Moreland's Bible College, we had to study ourselves. Because if you know what you're like, you can cope with everybody else. We had to read a book, I'm okay, you're okay. I would have liked to change the title, I'm okay, you stink. Because some people react to us in a different way. It also started to unpack certain people, certain situations. Why do you react in that way? You react in that way because that's your DNA. That's what you do. So how did this visionary get his four guys together? Well, one of them was clearly an engineer. Clearly. You read on in the story. When they arrive... And the very people that are meant to reflect Jesus are the very people that sometimes stop us seeing Jesus. So there's a problem. So they go for the roof. And they go for the roof. And as they go for the roof, they land this paralyzed man exactly where Jesus is standing. That's what engineers do. If that had been me, there would have been holes all over the roof, hoping that we'd hit a point. This engineer said, no, we need to dig it here. I don't know who else was on the team. I reckon there was somebody on the team, because I just have this view, that just came along for the ride. He wasn't doing anything. And he knew God had some plans for his life, but he couldn't work it out. Some people need leadership. And when you give them leadership, you just say, hey, carry this. Where are we going? Capernaum, that's a long way. Shut up, carry it. <laughs> I also reckon there was probably someone on the team, because they seem to be on every team. When they arrived and there's all these people standing around, I reckon he said, I told you this would be useless. <laughs> I told you this wouldn't work. 
See, look, we're not going to get in there. It's hopeless. I mean, whose silly idea was this? And then the visionary is saying, no, we've got to find a way. And then the engineer says, the roof. Think differently. Don't do it the way you've always done it. Think differently. Why? Because we're passionate about this gospel. That's the motive. And then I reckon the guy that had been carrying it, when they're coordinating the roof, I have this weird imagination. I probably thought he said, well, if we drop him, it doesn't really matter because he's paralyzed anyway. <laughs> A team of brothers. And listen, you'll never cope with disappointment if you've never got any vision. You'll never cope with living frustration if you don't have vision. But if you have vision, you've got to live with disappointment. You've got to live with some level of frustration. And some of the people that we have to call to work with, because amazingly, they've been called by God. And I sometimes say to God, why did you pick them? Because God's like that. And part of the DNA of nurturing and coming to the body of Christ. So the first thing I want to say is the only way we're going to see the transformation that we need to see is as a team. But the second thing in this passage is look at Jesus' response. As soon as the man is laid before him, what does he say? He says, when he saw their faith, what did he see? Did he look up and see four heads peering through the hole and think, man, those four heads have got faith? No. He saw their faith because it resulted in action. Faith without works is dead. You tell me you trust God. What actions are revealing your trust in God? What actions reveal what you do with your finances, the way you live with your value system? Because that reveals the faith in God that you have. It's in your actions. It's in what you do. It's kind of, and when you push it out, push it out wide. Push it out crazy. Listen, if it all goes wrong, What's wrong with that? It will give you a great memory. You can say, do you remember when we tried that and we lost £100,000? It was a great idea. But God didn't seem to be in it. Hey, I want to be in, in a church that says, have a go. Don't you? And I want to encourage others, have a go. What have you got to lose? Nothing. And you've got everything to gain. But there's something that God jealously guards because what God likes to see is faith. What God loves is faith. Because I am convinced I have two children. They're not really children anymore. They're both married. And uh, one of them's just had a grandchild. I'm a granddad. I know you find that hard to believe. Isn't it amazing being a granddad? How many granddads? It's all true, isn't it? It's brilliant. 
because you give them back and you play with them and it's just great. And I'm like, I don't remember this when we had a two-year-old. But it must have been true. But let me tell you, I have two photographs in my wallet. I say to my kids, I had two photographs in my wallet where I used to have money. <laughs> of my two sons. And when they push out and have a go, I'm rooting on the sidelines. I'm saying, go for it. What you got to lose? Do it. Take the risk. Step out. I think there's a God in heaven who, as it were, has got a wallet. And in the wallet is a photo of you. And when he sees you taking that step of faith, he sends some angels and says, go for it. That's my boy. Look. Look. They're not accepting the way it is. They're going to change. And when Jesus sees that kind of faith, as small as a mustard seed, something that you think is really insignificant. I had some crazy ideas. That crazy idea around the truce was a crazy idea, but you just saw it coming. And then we got Prince William to endorse it. 280,000 people sung Christmas carols in football stadiums because nine months before, somebody had a crazy idea. That's it. And then when you get that crazy idea, you put it into action. And God has to put some steps. And as God puts the steps, he then says, yes. And you discover, hey, there's something in this. And then when Sainsbury's spend five million pounds on an advert producing it, you just think, ah. So dream, will you? When he saw their faith. And then the final piece, because Spud said you can speak for as long as you like, but if you go over, you will die. <laughs> he's full of the grace of God, but every now and then you know he's from Northern Ireland. <laughs> and then look at the response. Because for me, this is the key. The reason we take the action, and we're getting pretty good at social engagement. The church, I'm going to talk a bit about this later, is doing some amazing community involvement. We are loving people unconditionally in a way that we've not done for a long time. Food banks, Street pastors, luncheon clubs. But are we seeing people having their sins forgiven? Because in the end, that's what brings about the transformation. Have you known your sins forgiven? Because Jesus makes this amazing statement. And when Jesus is in the house, this is what happens. He turns to this paralyzed man and says, I know you have a physical need, but I'm going to meet your spiritual need, and what you need is forgiveness. There's a release in forgiveness. There's a presence in forgiveness. There's power in forgiveness. 
I read all sorts of books. I love to read books of biographies of people and what they do. I read a book by Duncan Bannatyne. Anybody Dragon's Den? Watch that stuff. I don't think he's on there anymore, actually. And he wrote a book, Anyone Can Do It. And I'm reading this book. And as I'm reading this book, it's just a regular book. All of a sudden, this is what hits me. He says, from time to time, everyone involved in charity work like this breaks down in tears. He said, I cry easily. But even those who don't will break down at some point. The tears were always a private thing amongst my team. When they come, you find a place where you can be alone and cry. There's a little look that we've learned. We get away, find some space. We recognize what's happening. And we then don't say anything. For me, the tears came about 10 o'clock that night. I went outside. I found a quiet place at the side of the house. I couldn't stop the tears. The family we'd impact, the change in their life. My face was wet. My nose began to run. I was a mess. I had to choose, but I just decided to let the tears flow. They just kept pouring out of me. I, I couldn't stop. It seemed like many minutes. And then I began to get this feeling that I wasn't alone. It was there and then that God said hello. I felt that I'd been consumed by a presence. That something had completely shrouded me. It had taken hold of me. It was unmistakable. I knew who had come. And I also knew that it wasn't a spiritual thing. It was a Christian thing. I felt I was being told, you've arrived. Now is your moment. Be a Christian. This is it. It was profound. I stood there. It seemed amazing. I'm reading the book going, what? And then he says this. I stood alone. I was stunned. I was considering the offer, thinking about what it would mean. I knew I wanted to keep on building my businesses. I wanted to keep on making money. I also knew I wanted to carry on doing all the things I wasn't proud of. I knew I was never going to be this totally Christian guy. Church, Sundays, all that stuff. So I said, no, I'm not ready. And God said, okay. And the presence disappeared. Wow. Because once you engage with the poor and the broken, you touch God's heart in a way that nothing else does. But to just touch their heart without a sense of forgiveness doesn't bring about the transformation we need. So that's why this amazing gospel brings salvation. The kiss of forgiveness. And the church needs to shout that loud and clear. Because so often when they come to church, they don't sense the kiss of forgiveness. They sense the religious 
And they sense that if you blow it, the worst place you can blow it is in church. Which is the very place you should be allowed to blow it. Amen? That wasn't so loud. But that's the grace of God. And we are grace carriers. So we're a band of brothers, we're in this together. Secondly, we need to bring about the kiss of forgiveness. We need to tell people. Because there's no greater release when saying you're forgiven. But isn't it interesting? When people hear the kiss of forgiveness, they don't say, you know, actually, I want to see the change. And that's right, because if God loves you, he loves you enough to change you. But let's work with them. Because people's lives are messed up and broken. It's going to take a while. When I was in Youth for Christ, some of the messed up, broken people, we looked through prison we, and their stories, and it was messed up. And it was going to take a while, and some of their language wasn't the best. But God had done something. And they were journeying discipleship. And the very place that journey should go on is in the church, with the love of God being expressed. Then Jesus says, okay, you're getting upset. I'll give you something to really get upset about now. You're getting upset about forgiveness. Okay, let's go for broke. Stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Oh, no, no. Healing. There's healing in the house. It's a gospel imperative, isn't it? It's not for a certain group. They're the charismatics or the Pentecostals or... No, listen, healing's in the house. That's the gospel. And the gospel not only calls for forgiveness, the gospel also calls to say, I don't understand it. It's a mystery. I don't get it, but I'm going to pray for it. Because God's told me to pray for it. And if God chooses to heal ultimately by going to heaven, that's fine. But I'm going to pray for your healing now. Listen, if you meet someone sick, are you going to say, no, I'm not going to pray for you because Jesus doesn't heal today? <laughs> no. You're going to say, I'm going to pray for you. And I've seen some amazing things happen. I've also seen some mystery happen. But that's the way it is. And the final thing. If you're going to hit the DNA of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's always healing. There's always forgiveness. There's always a step of faith. And let me tell you what happens to the people of God. Everyone. The religious that were thinking this shouldn't be going on. The four guys in the roof probably had a hallelujah breakdown and fell through the roof. But everybody left that day saying, we have seen awesome things that we couldn't believe. And there's a supernatural God that's at work in our world. And the presence of his spirit has been here. And because the presence of his spirit has been here, we say to people, you should have been there. You should have been there. It was amazing. God was there. I hate that term, God showed up. Listen, God's always there, but the manifest presence of God, when the manifest presence of God, it gets messy. It's not neat. It's not tidy. 
We could invite the Spirit to come and we could wait on God for a while. Some of you would be like, what's going to happen then? Then God comes and you're like, oh, I'm not sure about that. Oh, there's a mess over there. That person's cracking. What's oh, get control, get control. No, don't get control. And see how you feel. Because if God's God, he wants an awesome presence in the people of God. So let's walk by faith. Let's walk in the team. And let's be bearers of forgiveness and healing. So his presence is in the house every time we meet. In Jesus' name. Amen.